Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Katie Schultz, multiple award-winning author of Still Come Home, a novel surrounding the lives of three characters in Afghanistan, an Afghan woman with dreams and ambitions beyond the confines of her misogynistic society, an American soldier about to embark on one last mission, and a man working for the Taliban, not for any specific hatred of Americans, but because the money is good and he wishes to provide to his young wife. The lives of Asaya, Nathan Miller, and Raham, Asaya's husband, are forever entwined as the Taliban hatch a dangerous plot, and a simple mission for, for humanitarian aid turns deadly. Abigail DeWitt, author of News of Our Loved Ones, had this to say about the book. Schultz's ability to enter into these radically different lives is nothing short of breathtaking. There's tragedy here, but also humor, moral blindness, along with deep courage and the desert holds it all. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereadspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. So I want to start out here with something you said on your uh, on your website. You're a civilian who hasn't been to war, but yet you've written uh, this novel, Still Come Home. And before this, you wrote a book uh, called Flashes of War, which is a collection of short stories, which also won awards. And it has numerous characters. Um returning U.S. soldiers, jihadist, an Afghan mother, and so forth, to deal with this, uh, the, 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 the problem and the reality of war. And 
I want to ask a few questions about that because uh, as a civilian, you haven't been to Afghanistan, you haven't served in the military. Why did you want to write about war in Afghanistan? Well, I think it's pretty hard to write contemporary realist literary fiction without touching on war, to be frank, in some way, whether that means you have a character who lost a limb uh, or someone who's away from home on tour uh, or someone who lost someone or knows someone. So in that sense, um, really, I'm just doing my part to capture the reality of the last two decades of our nation being at war. Um, But on a more personal level, really what was most fascinating to me and a bit terrifying was the rapid rate at which words like patriotism, jihadist, infidel, terror, terrorism, infiltrated our dialogue and media and daily conversations following 9-11, and then how rapidly the words of those meaning, the meaning of those words changed, or another phrase like the power of pride or mission accomplished. So these words were um, being used for misinformation. They were being used for correct information. They were being riffed off of, turned into memes, all kinds of things. And all the while, an upcoming generation of youths who are now in college or in their early 20s and have never known our nation when we haven't been waging a war, uh, was hearing these words, among many other things. And so I really believe that when it's like if someone had told a painter one morning, the painter wakes up and they're told, well, red isn't red anymore. Red is purple. You know, and the painter would have something to say about that. I felt like that's what was happening to words. And when we start to change words and change our language, we change our behavior. We change our brain wiring. Mm-hmm. So I, that was my entry point, really on a very cultural level in terms of impact on behavior and impact on future generations. Yeah, and a little bit, uh, and you're right, this idea of sort of glorification of war with the patriotism and the standing and the national anthem, all this kind of gets mixed together in in the conversation. But as a writer, um, and this I think this would be interesting to people who write and also sort of an insight into the writer, uh, this is a challenging task to take on, to, to, to put yourself in, believable situations with characters. And I'm wondering if you could share, because I I looked at your website and some of the things you did, talk about some of the things you did to be able to actually understand what it was like to go to war and understand what it was like to be a woman living under Taliban rule. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did research. So uh, there's a lot available on Google image search. That was a very basic way in which I could get information about how a village the size of Imar, which is a fictional village located in the novel, um, but I could show you where it is on the map of Oriskan province in Afghanistan. I positioned it in, in a real place in my mind and on a map. Um, so, you know, getting images of a, a village about that size or a bazaar or houses, um, everyday clothing, um, 
what a family meal situation might look like. You know, that wasn't too terribly hard, but it was more like taking notes because I had to build the whole world up around the two Afghan characters, main characters in the novel. And then in terms of the military, you know, that was just as foreign to me. Uh, And so there was research to do there, but it had more to do with... um, because I'm an American and I did at least share that culturally uh, and that identity with the soldier, Nathan Miller, that I imagined. It had more to do with the nuances of military culture in particular. And then, of course, getting things accurate like weapons and rank, career timeline. So there I um, was able to lean on some veterans that I had met on my tour for the first book. And they were able to very easily clarify some things for me to make sure I could get them right. And also to help me understand that in some cases there was more than one right answer. You know, even th- even things mm-hmm. such as rank sometimes are not as clear cut as, as someone like me would have thought. So, you know, on a very basic level, I started out with that. But there was also plenty of nonfiction to read that sort of demonstrated how 21st century warfare works. You know, that we can we do have underwater night vision goggles. We can call in GPS points. There are certain helicopters for taking bodies away and other helicopters for um, coming in if you have an injured soldier. You know, the injured soldier, you got to get there quick. If it's a KIA, depending on the situation, you get a different helicopter. All kinds of things like that um, mm-hmm. I was able to find. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, you're an award-winning writer, but you also are a writing instructor and a mentor. You, you've won several awards, Doris Betts Fiction Award, a number of uh, awards for your work. Um, so I'd like to ask you just a few questions about writing philosophy because uh, I looked at your website and and you've got these photographs of you. Uh, my favorite one is the is the rugby team. You know, <laughs> we're all, you're, you're all covered in mud and you're talking about the moments that the cleats leave the ground, your love of living and all this kind of thing. And, and, and you say, um, you know, your passion about opening doors and shining light into dark places when you're talking about writing and I'm just wondering, do you see writing, which can sometimes be a kind of like a lonely sport, like a like a individual sport? Do you see that also as something of a team sport too? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to position ourselves in our sort of cosmic creative lineage. So, for me, I have I know the sort of artists and authors that I call on that are always whispering in my ear. And those are also places I can go to in moments of doubt or struggle, even if it's authors who are dead or artists who I've never met. Um, but then beyond that, you know, yes, writing is a solo sport, but yes, writing, uh, you know, we're also human. And part of what makes us human is the need for connection and the need to be seen and understood. So from there, um, from that belief, really, I was able to envision the mentorship program that I run now to create a creative, supportive, challenging, craft-infused learning environment that also acknowledges, look, we need time to ourselves to do the deep work, but when we come up for air, we need a safe place to land that's also going to inspire us. Mm. So I had some experiences like that, sort of toggling between deep immersion and deep focus, and then tremendous support and community affection in my own career and that 
it worked for me very well. And, and it undid some of the damaging messages that are out there for writers. And so when creating the mentorship, I really wanted to mimic that, that dynamism. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's great. Good point because writing can be individualistic, but there are a lot of people that help put your book into the world, whether they're your critiquers or they're your beta readers, or they're the people that help you get that book finalized. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, it, uh, it does take, uh, a lot of folks. And, but you mentioned also in your philosophy that you believe with all your heart that writing can save the world. That sounds a bit idealistic, but, uh, let's flesh that out a minute. Well, I think I might say all, any art, you yeah. know, has the potential yeah. to, yeah. so certainly it, but it has to be seen and understood. So it mm-hmm. needs to, you know, it's kind of right time, right place right temperament, um, right means, all kinds of mm-hmm. causes and conditions need to be lined up. But um, certainly art is, art is, you know, ha- one way in which we express and absorb mm-hmm. beauty. And without beauty, would we even be human? Would we even have society? I don't know that we could. Yeah. What were you hoping that this uh, book, and we're going to get into it in more detail here in the episode, but what were you hoping that this book uh, might do just a little on that needle to help change the world? I I can't say that I think in those terms while I'm writing. That would feel Mm. like way too much pressure. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But certainly... Uh, once you realize whatever writing project is on your desk might meet the world, there's a certain sort of opening that has to happen. And I could say mostly, you know, I think this is true for most most authors. You want people to be moved by your book mm-hmm. and to understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's sort of an obvious first. And beyond that, you know, I think, there's a couple overall messages. One of them is that when characters are put in situations where they can do everything right and still be wrong, it's not hopeless. It's an opportunity for perhaps the most authentic action we'll ever take in our lives. So you can be in a situation where you do everything right and you're still wrong. And not only do you come out knowing who you are, but you can still come home. Mm. So yeah. that might be nice if someone would connect the dots in that way. Yeah. And you do put these characters, which we're going to talk about in a moment into some difficult spots in terms of the decisions they have to make. Uh, last, last sort of writing inspirational thought I found you talk about taking the leap, um, striving, to, to do that thing, to, to jump out of your comfort zone? Speak to that just a moment. Taking the leap depends on your goals. Sometimes taking the leap means you read at an open mic and you've done it. <laughs> and other times taking a leap means putting an entire draft of a manuscript aside and rewriting it uh, with the express goal to see through one's own blind spots and to deepen one's craft on the page. Mm. So there's really a whole spectrum. Um, But especially if we're writing um, 
knowing that we want to reach a larger, larger audience. Of course, the hope there is, is that you've done your due diligence. Like you have shined a light in the dark corners. You know where you're afraid to look. You know where you haven't looked. And you have done everything within your power and skill and education to uh, right those wrongs <laughs> mm-hmm. and do do the research, do the heart work. Um, and yes, leap. <laughs> and that sometimes means writing horribly, writing horribly, 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 writing wrong, writing offensively. So you write it all, but it doesn't all make the final cut. Mm. Those Good. edits are leaps. Those edits are leaps of faith. And the more we do it, I think the more we can sort of strengthen that muscle that we need as writers, so that being the muscle of discernment and confidence. That's great. And that's a great uh, lead for me to let listeners know that when we're finished with this episode, uh, Katie and I are going to jump over to our Patreon channel and talk about the art of revision, which is something that's very near and dear to her. And I'm curious about too, as I'm working on my fourth book and I'm into that phase of the process. So we're going to have a good time talking about that. Uh, I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode, but now let's, let's get to a, to a reading. We do this in the, on Charlotte's podcast where authors give voice to the written words. This is going to be early in the book. Um, and, you know, perhaps to set this up, Katie, you can tell us uh, a little bit about the, uh, one of the main characters here who lives in this village. Um, you know, the young, young Afghan woman, uh, because she's going to appear in this uh, reading, and also it's going to kind of bring the, a little bit of life to the to the little town that you, the little village that she lives in. So tell us about this character. Sure. All you really need to know is that Asaya is seventeen, and she's wearing a burqa in this scene, and has left the house unaccompanied, which is a pretty big deal. And we're in the tiny little village of Amar. So this will just position you a little to her daily world. Asaya reaches the crossroad and knows she should turn around. It wasn't so long ago she left her burqa at home and walked in public with her father. Now, to remain outside the home unattended, Asaya should shrink at the thought. She's one of only a few women who still pushes this boundary in Amar. It's not in her nature to hold anything back, not hope, not fear, perhaps most of all, not ambition. She turns down the main thoroughfare where a few rusted cars are parked haphazardly, half on the pedestrian pathway, half in the road. A blue scooter lies in a ditch, its kickstand mangled. She crosses the street to avoid its path, No one has dared go near it for years, the prevailing rumor being that it was planted with a bomb. Amar had only seen two such ambushes in Messiah's lifetime, both manned by a suicidal mujahideen on a scooter aiming for Americans who patrolled the village frequently during those early years of fighting. Seeing the scooter sets Asaya's suspicions reeling. She's heard about fellow villagers swapping allegiances throughout the war. Her father was resourceful enough to outwit such dishonesty, though in the end, what did his skill matter? The abandoned scooter in a village with no gas stations, no electricity, only confirms one thing. Betrayal and indignation share the same bed in Amar. The neighborhood itself remains quiet today, 
hardly a hint of human occupancy other than the occasional tales of smoke rising from courtyards. Like little prayers, so many women tend those fires amidst various daily tasks. Most of them never knew Mrs. Darrow, the visiting English teacher who came about the time the tap stands were installed. Most of them weren't born to such a worldly father as Asaya. Most don't look at the horizon and see a line to follow, either. Asaya longs to have classmates again, or at least another girl with whom to share her dreams of progress. She can't afford to let go of hope. It's private comfort like the lead thread in an embroiderer's hand. Lose that, and the entire pattern gets disrupted. So much gone to waste. Thank you, Katie. That that really does give us um, gives us an insight into two things into the into the environment that she's uh, living in, not, not only physically but emotionally, right? Yeah, yeah. And so this idea of uh, men controlling women uh, is one of the themes in this book, and also the struggle that uh, this character goes through in trying to to deal with that, but it's, uh, it's just one struggle because you've also got several other characters. You've got, uh, a military officer, uh, and you've got this, uh, woman's husband who's got sort of conflicts as well. Let's talk about those two characters a minute. Cause that kind of rounds out all, all the different uh, <laughs> conflicts that are going on here. Sure. Yeah. So Asaya is 17 and married her father's first husband, Rahim, who is 40, Um, She married him after a bomb killed everyone in her own family. So uh, it's sort of, they were sort of the last two left. (laughs) And they're also sort of the black sheep of their own wings of the family. Asaya is determined and has had at least a little bit of education and was raised by a father who believed that she was capable of anything. Rahim had a traumatic upbringing and was, um, as a young, young boy, experienced the practice of Ajabazi, which is unfortunately still going on, where um, older Afghan men or Mujahideen will um, sort of recruit and um, enslave or employ. It's really quite complicated to describe, but they will involve these young boys in cultural education for dancing and singing, but the experience of Bajabazi can then turn into a sort of sexual predator relationship. So the book doesn't focus on this, but Rahim came from that and that gave that gave him a tenderness and a fierceness that made his marriage with Asaya really unique. Um, so I really took a lot of care to make them whole and to make their marriage dynamic as much as I could, despite the fact that I felt most of my readers would be American and would either have no understanding or some preconceived, perhaps incorrect understandings about prearranged marriage, about interfamily marriage, about a marriage of that age span. So I tried to sort of turn a lot of that on its head without making it the focus and just let them be human. Um, Nathan Miller is, uh, was a guardsman who (laughs) ended up where he ended up as a second Lieutenant and he's four tours in. So he's had a unique career to sort of be at that level and have had four tours. And 
he's originally from Indiana, but moved to Western North Carolina to be with his wife and start a family. And on his third tour, a soldier died on his watch in, in such a manner that he really feels it was his fault. He really feels he could have prevented it. And so although he is exhausted and his marriage is at risk, he decides to go back one more time. And this novel begins um, right at the end of that final tour for him. Mm. So interestingly, Asaya and Rahim appeared in my first book, Flashes of War, as their own short story, completely separate from Nathan Miller. And Nathan Miller appeared in my first book, completely separate with his own story. And in the first book, Nathan is uh, home from this fourth tour and has PTSD and trying to find his way. And when I finished that story, I thought, how did he get here? Like what happened to him on that fourth tour that brought all this about? And that question years later was still with me and ended up, ended up being the springboard for the novel. Yeah. I love the what ifs that, uh, that lead to great work. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Let's talk about the title as it relates to these characters still come home. I sometimes ask authors what either they're searching for, or their characters are searching for, uh, what concept of home are these three characters searching for? The sense of home, of course, is not necessarily physical. So coming home to your true, your truest self that you carry with you wherever you go, of course, is one meaning and perhaps the truest meaning for all three of these characters. But then there's also this question of what is home? For Nathan, he loves Indiana. He feels suffocated in Western North Carolina. He is capable in Afghanistan. So where is his home? For Rahim, he grew up in several different provinces in Afghanistan, and home for him really has to do with any position he can find himself in where he actually has some autonomy. Instead of having to answer to these politically, culturally, historically motivated parameters that have taken away his sense of power and self-worth. And the same is true for Asaya in her version of it, the way that it manifests for her as a young woman. Well, you know, all novels have to have a good antagonist. And in this case, I'm sort of, this is my take, that the uh, antagonist is more than just, you know, one single person. It's really sort of the oppressive and violent nature of what's going on in that part of the world and how that's controlled, you know, the Taliban perhaps and all the plots. You, you speak to that. I'm just kind of speculating mm. a little bit here. That's a great question. I think the antagonist is the money. Okay. Yeah. So sort of behind the scenes of each of these three characters' daily lives is the, the money machine that funds these wars. And at some point in my years of drafting the novel, I came across an article in The Nation it was published in 2009, but I don't think I read it till around 2013 or 14. And that article in 2009 was groundbreaking in the sense that it revealed actually the play-by-play -play of what happens in host nation trucking. Mm. To put it very briefly, Americans hire Afghan trucking companies that are based in Afghanistan to deliver goods to American soldiers on forward operating bases. We write the check, the Afghan company takes the money, 
and says, okay, we'll do it. Well, how do they do it? They do it differently than we would do here, which is fine. <laughs> but what they're one, one thing sometimes you have to do to get from point A to point B um, is bribe your way through. Bribe warlords, bribe Taliban, and you will get those Americans what they need. But you might be dropping money all along the way. And so in the backdrop of this novel is the question of where does that dollar, where do those dollars end up? What impact does that sort of trickle down movement of money have? And how does it specifically change the lives of Asaya, Rahim, and Nathan? Yeah, I'm just thinking, where does the disincentive uh, to stop, <laughs> you know, happen? Because uh, if, if, if you can create that violence or the threat of violence to get money in return, uh, it's, it's going to be there. Well, look, there was an interesting quote um, in the book here about, about Rom, and it's just, he's talking, he says, a few weeks ago, it wasn't the Taliban fighters. The movements that caught Rom's attention with their laughter, little jabs of sound punching through the packed heat. It's not as if the fighters held them at gunpoint. No one threatened or fired. No one suggested Rom couldn't back out. The desert simply offered the fighters and their money, pairing them with this sideline opportunity to ambush deliveries and suspicious non-residents. As I read that, I'm thinking, okay, this is, I mean, how does he get out of this arrangement? And it's almost just as if it's a regular part of daily life. I mean, I can't answer that experientially, but I can tell you that I did the research to the best of my knowledge. Uh, yeah. And, and I did also track, you know, the history of Taliban rule in Orskan province. And I positioned the forward operating base where Nathan is at in Tarnkaut, where there actually is one and did talk with people who knew, yes, here were some of the quote-unquote easier years, here were some of the quote-unquote harder years, here's when this might have been going on, here's when that might have been going on, to sort of try and position it realistically, because this is set in a specific time period that directly um, to the month coincides with General McChrystal's orders that changed the rules of engagement for U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. General McChrystal's letter, which you can find on Google, appears verbatim in the novel, and the characters have to change their behaviors as a result of it. So one day, I hope that this book will be historical fiction, mm. Um, mm. and perhaps a moment that you just described, that you just read from from the novel, um, will also be a point of discussion where people could talk about the reality of that or what kind of had to take place culturally and historically for that kind of run-in to even be possible in the first place. So let's do this. A couple of minutes left here, just a few writing life questions. Uh, this might be unfair to ask someone who's sort of invested so much and you're doing so much with your writing and you've come so far, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value that had she known it way back then that might have helped her, you know, through that process early on, what would it be? Be patient. Mm. And your career doesn't need to look like theirs. That's great. Yeah. How much of your um, writing on a daily basis also involves, that is this craft of writing also involves the business side of writing? Because I hear writers talk about how they spend so much time during the day 
writing and so much time during the day working on the other part of their writing lives? Well, I don't write every day. And I think it's important to say that because a lot of damage has been done to wonderful writers around the world who've been told they have to write every day if they want to be called a writer. And I just don't buy it. Mm. Um, And I also have a small child. So, you know, that comes first. But the business aspect of writing, which I assume you mean, for example, book promotions or website, et cetera, can be quite time consuming right before a book launch and right after and on tour. But beyond that, I really put a lid on it. Uh, I don't engage in, I'm fully off of all social media now, actually. And um, the, the allegiance to me really has to do with tending my imagination. And if that means that I need to make turkey pumpkin chili like I did last night, or if it means that I need to read May Sarton's Journals of Solitude like I did this morning, then that's writing. Um, if it means I need to write my morning pages every morning for a month because 2020 exhausted me, that's writing. If it means I'm pulling up my current work in progress and busting it out every morning, getting a thousand words down, or staring at the cursor and deleting 50 words, that is writing. So just as much as every writer needs to define what success means to them, every writer needs to define what writing practice means to them. And they need to develop a practice that can contain literary restlessness because that is a fact of our lives. So it needs to be able to flow without, um, you know, setting the writer up for um, fooling themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. It's not, it's not one size fits all. Uh, everybody brings a different uh, way of doing it, <clears throat> different voice. So that's perfect. Well, uh, Katie, this has been great. Listeners, we're going to jump over now to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, uh, where you can hear Katie and I talk about the uh, art of revision. It's, uh, it's a place where supporters of the podcast can get so much content. So go over there and join us. So, Katie, thanks so much. Uh, congratulations on the book, Still Come Home. Thanks for, so much for being on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.